Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast, another episode, and uh, hello to Darren Burgess, who's in Adelaide. Hey, Brookie, how are you, mate? Good, good, good. Uh, I'm in Melbourne, you're in Adelaide, and our guest is on the other side of the world. He is. Uh, he's, he's certainly well known. He'll be well known to all our uh, all our listeners. But uh, Stuart McMillan, introduce yourself and tell us a bit about yourself, mate. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me, fellas. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, or it will be a bit. It's a real pleasure for me to be here. It's um, I've, I've loved your podcast from the very first episode. I think I don't think there's been one single episode I've missed so far. So, thanks for putting it out there for for all of us to to listen to. I've been really enjoying it. Um, oh. So yes, Stuart McMillan. I'm based right now in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. I own a company called Altus. We uh, we coach elite sprinters and uh, educate coaches in in speed and in track and field and in performance therapy and a bunch of other different things. And uh, I guess I, I came to be doing this for the same sort of reasons as many coaches end up doing what they're doing. I was a failed athlete myself. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's, I had designs on becoming a professional footballer when I was growing up in, in England. My dad played professional or semi-professional. And uh, I sort of looked up to him and said, that's, that's what I want to do. All my, uh, all my spare time, every spare minute that I had of every day was out in the park playing football. Um, unfortunately, I just wasn't quite good enough. Moved to Canada when I was 12. And, um, you know, played, played up to a decent standard, but never, never to the point where I could actually make a living doing it. But my father was, was, uh, uh, we moved over to Canada when I was 12, as I said, and he started coaching pretty quickly after that. So I, I sort of grew up in a coaching household and was influenced through him to get really interested in what we were doing and why we were doing it. So I actually started coaching uh, a local football club when I was 14. I was coaching the under-11s. So from that, I just got, a, got the bug of, um, you know, like I said, just, just coaching and, and understanding and trying to work out how to get athletes better and what we were doing. It was initially in football or soccer. And, um, yeah, that was sort of how, how, I, how things got started for me. I, um, I was a pretty fast football player, and I found out, uh, pretty quickly that I was a pretty fast football player, but not a fast sprinter. I'd stopped actually uh, playing football when I was 22 or 23. And I had a bunch of friends who were sprinters and said, why don't you come out and try sprinting? You know, you're, you're still young, you're still fit. You still want to do something, uh, come out and try, try, uh, try out for the track team. So I did that and found out that I was a, a fast footballer. But as I said, not a fast sprinter. I was pretty rubbish. So well, it's that's, uh, that's better than uh, Darren, it. who was a slow footballer, and uh, that made him an even worse exactly. player, but that's all right. You know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, it's uh, what I was interested in, and like most of us who, who are coaches for a long time, you know, we're very curious about the process, and I was really interest in, interested in and how to get faster. What, it, what was it that that I was fast in football, but not fast in this new sport that I was, I was um, trying out. So I, I got really interested in power and speed and strength and everything that, that's around that. I started coaching myself to, to hopefully get a bit better. And I talked a few of my friends into training with me. And I, uh, I, I soon found out that, yeah, I'm, I'm still not fast. <laughs> it didn't make a difference who was coaching me. I still didn't get much faster, but some of my friends did. So um, that kind of started off the career. This was back in, in the early 90s. And a few of the friends that I was coaching actually went on to, to make international teams. And that sort of became, you know, the way that I wanted to make a living. Um, in Canada at the time, this would have been, uh, you know, through the, the mid-90s now, it was really challenging to make a living um, as a professional coach, especially in track and field. I, I think there was one professional track and field coach in the entire country. So I was, you know, just hustling and doing other odd jobs as we all do, you know, just bartending and, and uh, you know, busboy and, you know, delivering mail and different things. I think in, at one point, a, f a few of us sat down in our office at the Olympic Oval and counted our jobs and 
I think at one point I had uh, over 40 jobs as tr trying to support my, my coaching habit. But what, the, what was started off as a bit of a habit, not really making much of a living at it, finally in, in, in 2000, I was able to start doing it full-time, coaching the, uh, the U.S. bobsled team on, the, on the, uh, the lead up to the 2002 Olympic Games in Salt Lake City. Uh, slide aside, that was, the, that was my first Olympic Games that I've gone to. And this year is the first Winter Olympic Games since then that I haven't been to. So it's, this is going to be real interesting for me to, to watch on TV. I've never, I've never actually watched a Winter Olympic Games on television. So that's going to be interesting <laughs> for me. So, um, yeah, that was about it. That's, that's, that's the journey. So I was in Calgary for, for many years afterwards. It's Calgary in Canada. We had, a, you know, we had the legacy from the 1988 Olympic Games. We had some great facilities there, some great professionals. Um, some great sport physiologists and a great biomechanics lab and you know the 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 uh, real pleasure of, of working with a lot of real high level sort of other young practitioners like me matt jordan was coming up at the time nick uh, nick ward uh, scotty ma some guys that, you know that are really well known now in the industry and mentored by some some really outstanding uh, experienced professionals steve norris and dr dave smith uh, being probably the two uh, best known, and you know, obviously Ben Onig was up there in the biomechanics lab. So it was a, a really great place to be to sort of get my feet wet in the in the sport performance industry. So a really enjoyable sort of learning environment that led to, uh, as I said, just you know finally finding a, a full time career starting in about 2000, and then uh, from there it's just been okay. How can I find out more and more about power, speed, and strength, and and uh, you know, track and field, and and uh, you know, eventually consulting with different different uh, teams, athletes playing in different sports. So that's been that's been the journey. It eventually led me back over to the UK in uh, 2010 with UK Athletics, and uh, sort of coaching some of their sprinters on the lead up to the London Olympic Games. And then after the games, had a um, you know big question of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And uh, I had the opportunity to stay over the UK, but at that point, I think I'd had enough of the weather. Darren, you could probably uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> to that. probably agree with me. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I uh, I had this opportunity to come to Phoenix or come to America and uh, be based in the desert in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, with this this startup company called the World Athletic Center. Um, and uh, that's where I ended up. And nine years later, here we are in Atlanta now, and going strong. Well, it's a fascinating journey, and it really is um, uh, a credit to you from the – firstly, thanks for, for saying some nice things about the podcast, but, um, uh, yeah, it's a credit to you for the diversity that you've um, – you know, diversity of sports and events and, and teams. So uh, one of the things that um, I probably haven't acknowledged to you personally, but I'll do it in this forum, is the uh, – the great time I had getting to know you uh, after I got um, after I left or got sacked from Arsenal, uh, and we spent a fair bit of time just uh, at St Albans there having coffee and talking about uh, the world of performance, and and thoroughly enjoyed that, mate. It made a massive impact on me, so I appreciate that. If we can share some of those conversations with uh, with the audience, I think that'll really help. Um, I, I'm really interested from a, to go from a technical point of view first. You, you've sort of oscillated between, uh, let's say, bobsled to uh, uh, sprint coaching and then to field uh, sport athletes. Uh, firstly, just how bad are sprinters a field sport athlete? And secondly, uh, are there any principles, um, it, really broadly anyway, that, that cross over between the sort of disciplines that you've, uh, you know, that you've seen and experienced and coached. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a couple of weeks conversation there, isn't it? It, and, it uh, is. And I'm challenging yeah. you to do it in four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Done easy. Um, yeah. First of all, I appreciate that. I really appreciate getting to know you as well. Um, unfortunate circumstances at the end there. I wish you were still there. I really do. I think it's been, uh, I think you could have done some really, interesting and exciting things and you know my my three or four days over there at Arsenal was you know really enjoyable getting to know you a little bit more and also getting to know the staff there I think you I think you had a really nice setup so it was great to you know get an inside view of of what I feel and felt at the time was had a 
a real great opportunity to be a super high performing environment. I'm not sure where it's at now, obviously, because it's, um, you know, I'm not there and you're not there. So I don't have those conversations, but I thought I was very impressed by it. So, you know, kudos to you for doing the work that you did do there. And, uh, and as I said, it was great to get to know you through that. Um, and then, you, you, to, to, you know, to sort of just kick off on what you said there, it's, you know, I think a bit of a blessing and, and a curse, I guess, in growing up in a country where there's very few professional coaches in amateur sport is, you know, you've got to learn those heuristics, those commonalities between all the different ways and in, in, uh, the types of athletes that you're working in the types of in types of in team and sport environments that you're working within to try to create value for yourself across these sports right so it's there's no such thing as i said as a professional track and field coach in the u.s or in, in canada sorry there was no such thing as a professional bobsled coach there was very few professional snc coaches when i was getting started there might have been two or three there was paul Quinn, pete twist and you know scotty livingston and a couple more and that was about it so you know we had to hustle you had to figure out ways to to make it work doing a bunch of different things right so like I consulted not just in bobsled, but in skeleton and uh, CFL football and basketball and, and speed skating. Uh, we, we started off the very first strength and conditioning program at the University of Calgary. It didn't exist before we got there. So there was, you know, there's a couple of dollars there to be made. So it was, uh, you know, it, that 10 or 15 years of just hustling, trying to build not only your own, you know, ways in this, in this performance environment, in this industry, but also, in a in a sense, build the industry in Canada. It didn't really, as I said, really exist. So it was it was super interesting for me that way. And I think, really, you know, looking back with you know thirty years of experience now in my experience, in, in all of my experiences, is I don't think I'm the coach that I am today without that diversity of experience when I was you know I was coming up. So I'm really I look back with you know some, you know, some sense of uh, value to all of that. Um, so, you know, when you're doing that, you look for these heuristics and these commonalities between, you know, between sports and between athletes. And, you know, first and foremost, coaching is coaching. Coaching is working with, in most cases, young humans who have, you know, goals and, and, and dreams and, and, and passion for what they're doing. And your job and your role as a, as a coach is to help you know, help them reach those goals, those objectives, those passions, you know, help feed whatever it is that they're trying to trying to get out of this. So it's that in and of itself is is something I think that many coaches, you know, maybe lose sight of, you know, they get so stuck in the data and sports science around everything that we're doing that we kind of forget that these are these are young, growing men and women and, and girls and boys that, that we have a significant impact not only in their sports, but in their lives. So I think we, we need to take that, you know, not take that for granted. And I think oftentimes we do, uh, you know, and I definitely have for sure. These are things that lessons that I think we learn as we, as we grow. I'm way over four minutes, aren't I, Darren? Sorry. Just thinking, just waffling on their way. No, 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 absolutely. <laughs> But then, you know, there's there's obviously the technical part of it, right? I, I'm I'm known at this stage in my career as a sprint coach. You know, I've worked with, you know, some really elite sprinters and taken elite sprinters to to Olympic Games. And, you know, most of the work that I do now outside of sprinting in other team sports is with, you know, they I'm trying to help them solve their quote unquote speed problems. You know, if they have uh, teams or athletes that they want to in, improve the speed on. That's why I'm brought in. So there's, you know, it, it, I think where the industry has come and where we've, you know, where we now have understanding that we probably didn't have 20 years ago or even less, less than that, probably 10 or 15 years ago, is there used to be this assumption that, you know, you bring a, a speed coach in or a sprint coach in, or you improve the speed of the athletes that you're working with, players on the football team or rugby team or whatever it is team that you're working with, that there's an, that, they increase the way speed in which they play the game necessarily. It doesn't happen that way, obviously. The increasing speed outside of the game doesn't necessarily mean you increase the speed in which you can play the game. So that's one thing I believe that the industry is starting to understand better. And that's probably been most of my work now over the last sort of five or six years is to 
better help um, educate the coaches in who work in team sports in you know what speed means to them and how we can impact or influence the speed in which their teams play the game. So that's you know there's one way is yes we can try to impact the way the technique uh, of how athletes uh, or players sprint. Um, that might have an impact with you know uh, uh, developing athletes. It may not necessarily have an impact with professional athletes. Uh, we can impact their just their their speed through our you know better sprint programming. Again, might have better impact with developing athletes, maybe not so much with professional athletes. And then we have, obviously, we try to impact how they play the game. So how are they actually playing the game faster, which is what we're most interested in when, when I'm going in and consulting with professional teams. So that's a that's a, another conversation in and of itself. There's, there's a lot of confusion, I find, around that uh, area in team sports. And... And just on that, um, I'm going to ask you a couple of sort of more specific questions and then we'll get a bit generic. Give me your thoughts on, and don't be shy here, Stu, uh, give, give me your thoughts on what are the mistakes that people like me make with uh, when we're warming up players? What are some of the, the uh, general mistakes from a athletic preparation point of view? <laughs> um yeah, this is, that's an interesting one, right? So it's there's a few things in this. I, I I've worked now with you know over a dozen major league baseball teams, and you know I'm I'm often I come out the first thing that I normally do is I watch the coaching staff warm up the athletes that they're playing with uh, that that they're coaching, and so often they've got a list of warm up exercises and they're reading off the list and they're just watching the players move. And that's about the end of it. They do that for 15 or 20 minutes. And that's it. That's the warm up. Now we, now we move on to the workout. So first and foremost, most coaches, and I, and I would say most, I have no problem saying most here because almost exclusively I've seen this in every single environment I've been to is coaches are not taking advantage of this 15 to 20 to 30 minutes a day, three to four to five days a week for months on end that they have the opportunity to influence how the players move, how they perform, and they're not doing it at all. They're just listing off the warm-up exercises they go through. You can see there's maybe some intention with some of it. Some of the players are intentively trying to trying to go through this with, you know, try to move with some sort of purpose or some sort of quality. But most of the time, it's not. It's really poor. So first and foremost, that that is what I would I would say is the biggest problem I have with most fitness coaches or strength and conditioning coaches out on the field warming athletes up is they don't take a proper advantage of that time. Here's where we can truly impact how they move. And if we're impacting how they move, we impact their health, not just their performance. So it's uh, number one is that. Number two is, is I feel like, uh, you know, especially in, in soccer, right? We see, we, we've seen the same warm up for every single team for a decade now, for 15 years. They do all the same exercises <laughs> yeah. in the same little circles, same little mini bands. And it's just like, let's let's start thinking about what we're trying to do here. What are we warming up for? I understand the, the difficulty, difficulty of fighting against traditional practice. And this has become now traditional practice. And whenever we try to go in there and try to change something, especially at the professional level, you've got a bunch of professional players that are just looking at you like you're crazy. And most of them won't buy in, right? The only way, and that's generally the reason why we don't try to change it, because it's hard, because most of these players are going to laugh at us or not really want to buy into what we're doing. But it's the only way in which we can actually make impact, long-lasting, sustainable impact, trying to change our practice, is by committing to actual, actual change, trying to do this differently. So what is what is the entire objective of this warm-up and work backwards from there rather than just copying what everyone's been doing for the last 10 years? I feel like the warm-ups, especially in professional soccer, are terrible, absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, you look at some of the college sports over here and, and you know, many of the NFL teams, it's just as bad. It's really frustrating. And we, this is one thing that I feel like we just need to do a much, much better job of. You know, it's, so it's let's design a better warm-up and let's pay attention as coaches when the when the players are going through this warm up. 
So those are the two biggest problems I see, Darren. That's yeah, not necessarily a problem that you're, you're, you're making, but those are the two things that I see at almost every single team that I go to. Yeah, certainly a frustration, and particularly, as you said, in professional uh, football soccer, oh, I just get no time with the players and the coach won't let me do anything. Uh, uh, hang on. Which, how do, you, do you take the warm-up? Yep. How long have you got? Oh, about 25 minutes. Hang on, the session's an hour and a half and you're getting 30% of it. So, yeah, yep, I, I agree. Um, it's it's certainly a um, uh, an area that we can improve and particularly, I think, um, in that rehab space where um, you know, we probably don't take advantage as an industry of the time that you get one-on-one with players. I think we're getting better and more aware and, and that's uh, honestly without... Uh, blowing up your tyres too much is is a lot of the work that, that you and Altus have done. What about uh, during that rehab space? Last sort of technical question, then we'll get to more sort of philosophical stuff. Um, the rehab coach who runs with the athlete. <laughs> they're running through their their rehab progressions. Yeah, we, yeah, we've talked about that one, haven't we? Um, yeah, we take a step back a little bit, right? First, first and foremost, do we as an industry appreciate the importance of the quality of movement? And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves. And if if the answer to that is yes, then what are we doing about that? You know, it's it's. It's, I know it's challenging. It's really, really hard to define what that is. It's much, hard, it's much easier, obviously, to measure our impact quantitatively. We've got data. We've got different things that we can do. We've got different tests, and we can understand that. But I feel like as we get you know, more and more technologically savvy, that we go deeper and deeper into reliance upon a lot of this quantitative objective data. And, and I feel like we're we're losing respect and appreciation for something that, you know, when we were younger people and younger coaches, it's all we had. All we had was our, our eyes, you know, and even, even if the tech, the technology existed, we just weren't coaching at a level where we could access it. So all you have is to understand the quality of movement was at our eyes. And that's really important. And I feel like as an industry, we're losing respect for that. And a lot of coaches are not respecting that. And so and that's why you end up with coaches just watching warm-up but not really watching warm-up, if, if you know what I mean. And that's, sure. that's why you have a lot of coaches who are going through the rehabilitative process with athletes, not really un- trying, to, try, trying to understand or appreciate why the athletes are moving this way because they're too busy either running with them or, or pulling some sort of contraption behind them or holding an iPad and watching numbers as the athletes are going through these things. You know, what are you doing? The athletes injured from most, most of the cases because the quality of movement wasn't good enough for that, 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 that situation in time. Obviously, there's, there's exceptions to that. But what is it about the quality of movement that wasn't good enough? And let's try to figure that out. So when, when we're taking them through the rehab process, we can actually make you know better decisions that are not only based upon our these you know these these the data and the metrics are, are showing us. We can actually start developing this this qualitative skill, which is at its essence that's what coaching is. And I feel like you know, and so I could get on the rant about this for ages, but that's I feel like more and more that's what it is now. You know, and I'm seeing that in my own my own little corner of this field in in sprint and speed. You know, everything now is about force velocity profiling or speed profile. So all that's doing, that's great. I mean, that's really interesting stuff. And for, you know, J.B. Moran is a good friend of mine. So I'm not going to, for a second, bash his work and and the work of his colleagues because I think it's fantastic. But what you're doing now is you're having these coaches that don't have the actual coaching skill just, just revert only to profiling. And it's only, again, to looking at iPads and numbers. And that's not coaching for me. So when it comes to uh, you know getting to your question again, when you're taking athletes through the rehab, that is when our coaching is the most important because we all we all we all know that the you know the the um, the, uh, the the biggest reason why an athlete gets hurt is is because they've been previously hurt. So what can we do through that rehab process to try to mitigate those those re-injuries of what it, whatever it is that they they've injured? So it's. It's again. That's uh, that's probably the second reason why I'm brought in is to help um, practitioners through that process, especially the late stage rehab. You know, what does that look like? What does quality 
movement look like? What is quality deceleration? What is quality acceleration? What is quality sprinting? What is quality jumping? What is quality jogging? And if you don't have an understanding of what all of this is, then what are you doing? How do you know when you see it? So that's, um, yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's the, <laughs> that's the, that's so like, as I said, I could get on a rant for that for many, yeah. many hours. Yeah, no, I, I, I well and truly just <laughs> placed that ball on the tee for you and um, <laughs> yeah, have a swing at it. But um, yeah. I think it's, I think it's important. Uh, and my background as Brookie knows is, is GPS and objective data. And that's, that's what yeah. I did my PhD on. So it hurts a bit to sometimes go against that because I spent a year just looking at numbers and, and in most cases, uh, meaningless numbers. Uh, what what we know yeah, but, now. I mean, the, is, is, sorry, I was, I was just going to. Sorry for interrupting. I was just saying. No, the hitty, people, we're here to hear you, not me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the best people are the ones that, that you do use those numbers, but understand them in context and where they do fit, and also can look at things qualitatively, right? Which I mean, you had Jason Weber on there. Um, a few weeks back, and I really, really enjoyed that podcast. And here's, here's, a, I've never met, I've never met him, but I know that we would get along. I mean, that's my type of person. He went deep into the numbers, deep into the data, but also has a really, you know, refined, practical look and understanding of where all this fits. You know, I really appreciated how how he looked at everything. This is as an aside. Yeah, absolutely. Jason's a, a one of the best in the business by far, and he. Uh, like most of us old folk, um, have gone through that phase of uh, going through the numbers, making decisions probably incorrectly just on the numbers uh, and and rather than looking at the, the, the quality of movement and the coaching aspect. How, how do people uh, – what would be the easiest way or the quickest way other than oh, – including – taking some of your courses, which are outstanding, which I've sat through myself, um, to get a more of appreciation for the coaching aspect so that we uh, might better combine the objective with the subjective? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it starts with just appreciating its importance. Is it important? That, that's the first question we need to ask. If you don't think it's important, then it doesn't matter, right? You're, you're, it's, it's, it, we're, not, we're just not going to get there. As an industry, do we think it's important? And I feel like most of the people who are working at the coalface do appreciate it, do understand that, right? There's a sure. lot of researchers that, that don't, which is it, it's frustrating, right? We had that, that paper that came out of, um, um, who was it? Uh, Whitley, Whiteley, sorry, the, the, guy was, the guys at Aspire. Yes, a few years ago, Rod Wiley, basically yeah. saying, yeah, Rod Wiley basically said that mechanics isn't important, and I mean that that was very, very frustrating to me. Yeah, you know, that's, and that's frustrating for a lot of practitioners and coaches mm -hmm. that that you know you're just not there yet. So yeah, you you may not you may not see the importance from a um, you know from a scientific standpoint. You may not have the research data to show that it's not important yet. By the way, we we are starting to see that now. With, Again, some of JB's work and and Jordan Mendiguchi's work and so on. So we're starting to finally see the importance of quality movement as as it uh, pertains to health and performance. But you can't say that we we just it's it's I feel like it's just moving the industry in the wrong direction. So first, do we have an appreciation for its importance? Do we feel it's important? If it is, then what are you doing as a particular practitioner? And I include therapists in this, not just coaches. What are you doing? to appreciate it and to, to better define what quality movement is. Do you, do you understand that? So do you understand what a quality jog looks like? Should, do you know how people should be moving in and around the field? Do you have a bandwidth of appreciation or appreciation around a bandwidth for how most people move? Then within that, can you identify how, you know, individuals move within that bandwidth and where they need to, get a little bit more quality movement or whether, whether the whether the movement quality is, is good enough. So it's, it's, it's first, it's an appreciation for it. Second, it's then understanding each individual within whatever biomechanical model that we're working towards. And third is then the impact. How we're, how are we actually trying to impact it? You know, is it through our coaching instruction? 
Is it through cueing? Is it through working on different abilities and capacities and techniques and, 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 and so on and so forth? So it's, it's all of that is the big stew that we call coaching and something that, you know, probably why we're still here doing this 30 years later, right? Because it is, hmm. coaching is, is the ultimate generalist profession. We have to know a lot about a lot of stuff. It's not just uh, coaching instruction. So I, I, don't, I can't just sit back here on my computer and read Nick Winkleman and, and Brett Bartholomew and some of these other guys, and that's going to make me a better coach. It's going to be a part of it, but that's not all the coaching is. Coaching is everything. You know, it's, it's working on our eyes. It's working on our communication, on our, our instruction, our leadership, our understanding of what it means and how, how we can interact with the team of, of other practitioners, how we can stand in front of a room of 15, 18, 20, 30 uh, young athletes and get their attention and get our point across. All of that, you know, is, is dropped into this big stew of coaching. And uh, I, I feel like, you know, we, we tend to just bias towards those things that are the easiest for us rather than uh, trying to identify what all of those component parts of the coaching system is, figuring out which of those component parts we're weak in and trying to improve our, 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 uh, our work on those component parts. So, Stu, how, uh, sorry, if I could just jump in. I'm just curious as to how difficult it is for people like yourself to improve that quality of movement. You sort of hinted before that maybe in adolescence, you know, it, it's, it's a bit easier than, than in the older athlete. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's very hard to change the way people move, if, especially if they've been doing it for, you know, if they're a 30-year-old athlete or a 25-year-old athlete, they've been doing it for a long time. I mean, uh, is it obviously it's easier when they're younger? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, definitely. We're 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 far more plastic when we're developing, aren't we? So it's 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 significantly easier to change the way a fourteen-year-old moves than it is for a twenty-eight-year-old to move. So I mean, that's that's the question. This is where we really need to understand what quality movement is and when and when it's not a problem. So if you're working with a thirty-two-year-old professional player who moves with what you would define as poor quality, but this player's never hurt. Then you're not, you're not going to to uh, input into that system. You're not going to try to change the way that they move because you know they're 32 for number one, and they're never hurt, so it's okay, you know. But if they're 28 and they're moving in a really poor way and they're always hurt, then there's, there might be some sort of correlation there that we may have to try to okay, what do we need to do now to improve the quality of this move, this this how this player plays the game. And that could be through, you know, I, I talk about this thing called the, the PCATs, what I've talked about, uh, PCATs. I, I, it's uh, the, the uh, potential, the capacity, the ability, the technique, and the skill all existing on this continuum. And the skill is that, you know, that skill in context. It's how they play the game. It's what they're, what they're doing actually in the game. With most professional players, that's probably where we're impacting. Or... Uh, if we take that step back from that, maybe we're impacting the technique. So if we're, for example, if we feel like a, a player is not sprinting what we would feel is uh, effectively or efficiently in a game, then we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Is it, is it, is it a capacity issue? Is it an ability issue? Is it a technical issue? Or is it a skill issue? And then we, un we try to figure out where the, where the most appropriate leverage point is within that continuum. So most of the time with a lot of the professional athletes, it's in that technique or skill because they wouldn't be at that level in their sport if they didn't already have the capacity and the ability and the, the potential to develop these uh, different techniques and skills in the, in the game. So we, in, we try to impact their technique and their skill. Now, having said, having said that, which it's the opposite end of the continuum with say a 14 year old or a 15 year old. Generally with those, with the kids, we just get them stronger. So we're, we're, we're trying to affect their capacity in some way or the potential in some way. And we, under, and we try to teach them how to be better movers. So we're working on their ability and their technique. And there will be a fairly uh, robust, you know, one or two generational uh, change to their, their skill as, just a, as we just work on, on this, this, this other stuff on the under, other end of the continuum. That's not the case with a professional, as I said. So, you know, getting back to your question, the, the question we need to ask is, is it a problem? Is that if a player comes to us and he's a poor mover, the first question is, is that a problem? 
this because not always a problem. Like a 32 year old player who's always helpful or always healthy, that's probably not a problem. We're not gonna we're not gonna uh, step in there. But if that same 32 year old player is always hurt, then we have to do something. We may not be super successful because he's 32 and he's been moving in a certain way for 20 years. But we have to we have to try and do something if he's always hurt, right? And the second is what is the problem? Is it a technical problem, or is its genesis in it mechanical? Is it just that you know his body won't allow him to move in the way in which we hope or want or expect him to move? Is there constraints within his system that won't allow him to do these things? So then the strategies in, we, in which we try to impact how they're moving are also different, right? So we have mechanical strategies that will be through sports medicine, through different, you know, active and 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 passive uh, therapy uh, therapy modalities, or it could be technical. Maybe the, the athlete has the ability to move in a certain way, just doesn't know how to move that way, never really been taught how to move that way. So that's where we step in with, you know, whatever technical input we have or skill input we have. So it's, um, you know, there's a lot of depth to that question. You know, it's, it's, it's I'm not saying that it's always a problem. It's not. Um, we have a, examples in every sport of what we would define from a biomechanical first principle standpoint as poor movers but they're healthy and they're performing well because at the end of the day you know it's a movement efficiency rules over movement effectiveness if you are an efficient mover based upon your personal constraints your morphology how you sort of lived your life up until that point that trumps over any sort of bi biomechanical effectiveness biomechanical effectiveness so there's a lot of as i said there's a lot of depth in that and that's, that's something we could probably talk about for a long time but it's that's um, you know that's sort of the crux of my work with many of the, of the coaching staffs that I'm working with now. What about if you have a um, and we're really sort of diving into this because I'm just fascinated with your views on it. If you have an athlete similar to what uh, Brookie described, who is uh, fast and reasonably sort of robust and injury free. But you feel like if they did uh, a certain exercise, a certain drilling, that they could actually get more efficient. But they've been injury-free. They've been successful. They, you know, and in the NFL or, or whatever elite league. Um, do you tinker with that, or do you say, well, enough's enough. They've they've gone to a pretty good level without that help. I might just work on the basics uh, or, or getting them stable with maybe some improvement in strength and power if I can around the periphery rather than diving straight into some more technical things that, that may help but may in fact alter the sort of homeostasis that is already there. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, right? So it's if, for me, if I've got a player who's fast and healthy, I really do some deep thinking about whether or not I want to, you know, change, change their technique. So it's, you know, um, you know, the way, the way I look at it from that player is there may be some tweaks that we can do some small tweaks over the course of the time that may make or may help the athlete become a little bit more efficient, but we have to be super careful with that. Really careful. Changing a technique with an adult, is something that we're signing up for a six, eight, 12 month, sometimes longer um, uh, time timeline. I mean, it's it's really, really challenging. So I would I would encourage people if they've got a good move, if they've got a good mover, or not necessarily a good mover, but an athlete that's running fast, that's able to play the game well, and is relatively healthy, then we just keep ticking that along. Okay, let's let's not let's not get stuck in thinking that we know better. Than this, than this player, because that's we we do do that, right? We get these these biomechanical models in our brain, and we understand what quote unquote perfect technique should look like, and we also understand that there's some variability around that. So there's perfect, and that's right in the middle, and there may be a little bit of variability around to either side of that, and then we've got this bandwidth of what we would call acceptable technique for the average athlete or the average player in the sport that we're working with. We're not, we're not working with the average players, are we? We're working with individuals that have been moving in their own individual unique way for as long as they've been alive. 
So it's, re it's one thing to understand what the, as I said, the biomechanical first principles model is, the variability around that, but we always have to respect the individual human in front of us and how they move. So that's, you know, I guess to answer your question, I'd be really careful with that. Really, really careful. Um, I think we could probably get more bang for the buck when we're trying to affect efficiency through sports medicine means. So through passive and active therapeutic modalities than we can from actual coaching. Um, and I think it's uh, slightly different on the other end of the spectrum. If you've got poor movers and then the, um, you know, in trying to affect or affect effectiveness, we actually have to go in there with, with, with varying levels of coaching instruction, try to change their, their technique or their ability in some way. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, measured response. And I think sometimes uh, we probably try to uh, implement something that we've read or seen or watched or learned without uh, taking a more holistic approach. So uh, I like that we, too. We, um, we, yeah, we, we talk about, Dan, um, you know, sort of these big rocks, right? Like, what are the what are the rules here? Like, what are the what are the the main things that are important to all movers? And it's it's going to be slightly different from sport to sport. But if you, as a coach, you know, you're looking at your group of twenty five or thirty players, and you understand your sport, and you've been around it for a, for a long enough time, and you have an appreciation for the for movement, you'll have a list of three or four or five different rules i call them rules right so what are the rules and for me i've got these sprinting rules that i feel are universal whether you're an elite sprinter you know running 100 meters for a living or whether you're a, a you know a professional footballer or whether you're a 14 year old uh, soccer player you know the rules are the rules right there's there's some things that i these you know three or four or five things that every good mover should have and these, you know, I have some rules, but you should have some rules. And every every other coach out there should have some rules that fit within their sort of philosophical constructs, right? And it's it's not looking at you know the, the nitty gritty, the minutia of, of these of these techniques and skills, but the the very basics, you know. And I don't read it. I don't like talking about the fundamentals, the foundational movements, but it could be they're really challenging to identify. But we have to work to at least feel like what are the important things. You know, I feel, for example, how the foot impacts the ground is really important. We know that, right? For sure. There's, there's, not a, there's not a coach or a sports medicine practitioner on the planet that won't say that, yeah, that's important. Now, what's important about it? And where can we try to impact and affect how these players impact the ground in, in various ways? Is there some certain level of passive mobility at the ankle joint that you require in your sport? Is there some sort of you know, a requisite stiffness of the ankle complex that you require in your sport? Is there some technical uh, way in which you should be moving that's going to be affecting how the foot is going to be impacting the ground? So we need to understand that. If the foot and how that impacts the ground is important to you, understand all the players that, that speak to that. You know, is, is knee height in running, is that important to you? It's probably not, right? If you're a team sport coach, hopefully that's not important to you. But it might be. It might be. It might be important if you're, say, a sprint coach. Maybe you know, the amplitude of the thigh on the front side of your center mass is a is a a KPI for most sprint coaches. So how do I affect that? What is that limited by? So we have to ask these questions. If that is one of your rules, then dive into that rule and understand it better. But it's it's, it's so it's not as I say. It's not about coming up with this, these all of these really uh, refined technical models for all of the different ways in which we move rather than rather that it is three or four or five these big rock KPIs that define what effective movement is for the players of the game that you're coaching. And then I think to, to wrap that part up, it's then coming up with what, what's your capacity to improve that or, or alter that? <laughs> How will that you know, given the limitations of your staff, because if it's just me, my capacity to improve or alter that is probably limited because I don't have your experience. So what do I do then? Do I employ somebody who can or do I bring you in or, or make those decisions and then also have a look at your environment and say, if I go down this path, how will that affect whatever else we're doing? And is do I consider that a big rock as as you stated? So I think there's a few decisions to make and 
Um, and don't be lazy with it. Don't just say, no, it's a bit too hard, so I won't, because you've answered the first question, is movement important? You've answered that, yes. So then you sort of must follow that path down. Um, so I think there's a few, uh, yeah, a few other steps as well to to sort of uh, try and ascertain what your ability is to to actually affect that change. Um, yeah, in your in your yeah, current environment, good, your current sport. Yeah, no, it's it's very fair, right? But the the answer isn't, as you said, to just shrug your shoulders and say, "Oh, this is too much, it's too hard." Yes, it is hard. It is hard. You know, but the only way that you're going to get better at it is by actually just moving forward and figuring it out. You know, so it's, it, you know, don't, don't identify 10 rules. If you, you know, if you've been coaching for five years, don't have a list of 10 rules, have a list of three and just get really good at those three and understanding yes. those three really well. And then maybe you add another, and then maybe 10 years down the line, you've got five, you know, and you've understand how these five rules all interact, you know, and how they all interrelate, you know, that's, it's, it's, I feel like we just try to do too much. You know, this is a, this is a complex dynamical system that we all operate in. And as we know, with all complex systems, it's much more important to understand the interrelation, interaction of all the parts within that system than it is to understand one little piece in the system by itself. So it's, you know, when you, we have to work to develop and, and design simpler systems so that we can better understand the adaptation and the interrelation between these these parts of the system rather than coming up with some you know massive big complex system with with a dozen data points and a dozen qualitative rules that we're looking at and you know all these other things that I typically see in most teams. Stu, what would be an example of some of those rules you're talking about? Those three rules or five rules or so on, just without giving away like trade secrets. What what sort of you know what do you mean by these rules? Oh yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's definitely no, no trade secrets here. I, I feel that the, the the flexionability of the ankle is a really important thing for all all athletes. So that's one dorsiflexion. Can you dorsiflex appropriate to the task that you, in whatever sport that you are playing in, um, you know, can you can you dorsiflex appropriate to whatever that sport is? So in in sprinting, for example, you need a certain level of dorsiflexion up to about neutral. Any dorsiflexion past neutral is probably excessive. But if you spend, uh, if you're playing a sport where you spend a, a significant amount of time accelerating, you're going to need more dorsiflexion than that, than, than you will if you're a sprinter. So we may, you know, then we may have a passive range of dorsiflexion that might be 10 degrees or 15 degrees past dorsiflexion. And we would hope that most athletes are there. But more than that is we, we appreciate other things around that. Okay, so dorsiflexion is important. Reflection of the ankle is important. How does that impact the type of work that we do with, with the uh, the gastroc and the soleus muscles, and then you know try to impact the, the stiffness around the knee and the stiffness around the ankle? So that would be one. You know, just ankle uh, stiffness or ankle flexion ability. Another thing would be um, shin angle as you attack the ground. So if you're accelerating, you need to have a, a shin angle that is moving backwards. So the foot is uh, impacting the ground uh, behind the knee as close to center mass as you possibly can. So if you go, if you play in a sport where acceleration is important, then we need to understand shin angles a little bit. We also need to understand torso angles a little bit. We also need to understand how the, um, the upper body moves relative to the lower body. So I, I, you know, rule that we have in, um, in sprinting or in track and field sprinting is you've got counter rotating uh, arms and shoulders uh, to counterbalance what's happening at the hips and legs. So we look at the, you know, the, the confluence, the harmony of what the, sh what the shoulders are doing to what the hips are doing and what the arms are doing with what the legs are doing. That may not be important to you if you're playing a sport with a, say a hockey stick in your, in your arms, for example. So those are just, just, just an example of a few of those, but it's, you know, it's, um, as, as I said, it's, it's, you know, knee height at upright sprinting is a rule. That is something that's actually a KPI. The higher the amplitude in most instances, the, uh, the, the fast, faster the, the velocity in, in all things being equal, you can drop a, a bigger hammer into the ground, you can hit the ground with, with more force and you go further with each step. We don't have time to do that in many other team sports. So it might be something totally different. So it's just, it's just some technical reminders that you can uh, talk to the players about every single day. 
So if, for example, as, as we're taking the players through a warm-up, maybe we've got some skipping exercises. Maybe we have some shuffling exercises. Maybe we've got some exercises that we're, you know, involving the ball. And one of our rules is, is ankle stiffness. That's something that we can remind them about every single day over and over and over again, regardless of what they're doing. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that I see that, you know, a, a really easy, you know, low-hanging fruit for most of these players is just paying attention to what their feet are doing. I mean, that's really, it's really it. Look, just talk to them about having a stronger, tighter foot on impact with the ground with every single thing that they do, whether it's skipping, shuffling, jogging, striding, or sprinting. So that would be one, one, uh, you know, one significant one that I was talking that, that I'd be talking about almost every single day. And as I said, if you've got two or three other things like that, and it's just constant reminders that the players can 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 work on every day as they warm up or through the through whatever rehab process they're going through or and so on we are uh, brookie you're the timekeeper I'm yeah assuming... we're uh, we're out of time which is i'm out of love to uh we might have to get Stu back i think uh for another another episode before we go we should explain the uh the musical theme burjo because uh as uh, our li- regular listeners will know we generally uh have you'll never walk alone but uh Stu said i'm not coming on if that uh, bloody song's on i uh <laughs> i need something else <laughs> so Stu, explain why your choice of uh, your choice of theme song <laughs> So I, I grew up in the UK. I moved to Canada when I was 12, but I was in, uh, I was living actually in Blackburn, just outside of Manchester in 1976. And in 1976, Manchester City won the League Cup with, a, with an overhead kick from Dennis Stewart. And because Dennis Stewart, his last name sort of stand, sounded like my first name, and because he won the game with this overhead kick and he had long, flowing blonde hair like I did at the time, <laughs> Dennis Stewart became my favorite player. Man City became my favorite team. Uh, we ended up getting season tickets. I went to every game for the next uh, three or four years, including the, the FA Cup final in 1981 when they lost, lost against Spurs in the replay. And I've been a, a diehard Man City fan since 30 years of misery and now finally eight years of, uh, of a lot of fun. And there's no way that I'd come on here with, if you guys are going to proceed it with, you'll never walk alone, even though it's an incredible song. And I've got you know, my even the the, you know, the hair stands up in the back of my neck when I I listen to it when it's being sung at Anfield prior to the game as well. But um, so blue moon it is. Okay, we'll allow that, Stu. You wouldn't believe this, but I was actually at that uh, replay in 1981, that uh, that Tottenham uh, oh, Man City uh, game at, at Wembley. I was right behind uh, Ricky Villa's goal. It was uh, very nice. Oh, uh, I, I'm sure you don't need to yeah. be reminded of that. Um, okay. <laughs> so enough of, <laughs> uh, of Blue Moon and uh, and uh, you'll never walk alone. Stu, thank you very much. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure having you. Uh, uh, I know you're a busy man. We really appreciate the, giving up uh, an hour of your time. And as I said, we're going to have to get you back on because there's a million other things I want to talk to you about. So uh, once again, thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. Thanks, you. Thanks, Stu. Cheers, mate. Thanks, guys. <laughs>